0: The talk tonight is about gratitude and contentment. Aspects of mudita and upeka or empathetic joy and equanimity. And remembering that the Empathetic joy is that ability to connect to the joy in the world and appreciate it or feel gratitude toward it. And that the equanimity is that ability to connect to that vast range of joy and sorrow in the world um, and hold it or abide with um, a deep acceptance of how things are. So going back to that phrase from the Buddha, that there are two very rare and precious human beings in this world, one who shows kindness and then one who appreciates the kindness shown to them. So this uh, gratitude is considered rare. And it means that we have received, and, and this is critical. It's like the gratitude isn't, in this case, it's not something, again, that's figured out through the thought process, but it means that there has been some part of us that actually has let go of control and that is able to receive and then is able actually to be thankful for that. Genuine, very, you know, the genuine kind. This is from um, The Book of Small by Emily Carr. The smell of the earth was rich. The pines and the cedars smelled spicy. The wind mixed all the smells into a great, grand smell that made you love everything. I really love that. I love being somewhere where I don't have to explain who Emily Carr is. (laughs) That's the best relief of them all. (laughs) That feeling, you know, that when we really love everything, and it's so genuine, yeah, This this is... how empathetic joy feels. And this connection to the earth, you know, being here at Hollyhock, if we don't have it, that connection, certainly it's a doorway into um, connecting with the earth's body. And that the earth's body includes the eagles or the yellow skunk cabbage you know, or our bodies. It's like being able to see that when we touch the earth with our, the bottom of my, our foot, that the earth can be our benefactor. I mean, not again, not something randomly <laughs> intellectual or casual, but really that very deep sense of being born from and being part of and belonging. There's a Pali word, Anjali, and there are several different descriptions of it, but it's like when people bow, when they put their hands together in front of their heart center and bow, um, that is meant to be a gesture of reverent, reverence. And, and we, we have that reverence for the, the deep part of ourselves that is so good. <laughs> but the goodness, the goodwill, the, all these things that we're talking about, really. So we're not bowing to a personality. And, you know, this is so important when we walk in the hall and you see us bowing to the Buddha. We're not... Bowing to a personality, and it, it's very helpful to remember that there was no image, uh, there was no human image for the Buddha for like four or five hundred years. <laughs> That's amazing. So there, it really would be like a a footstep or an empty seat, you know. Very, and this the image was actually likened to the Greek god Apollo. So the traditional way of Anjali, you know, when you go in a, a traditional Buddhist monastery or bow to a monk or any of that, it's like you're bowing to the you're bowing to the Buddha. But the meaning of it is what's so important. Or you're bowing to the Dhamma. Again, it's the meaning bowing to the Sangha. The meaning for us is what matters. And that touching our forehead to the ground, to the earth, is is meant to be, uh, instead of the hands touching at the heart center, that touching our forehead to the earth is like a deeper gesture of reverence. So, of course, it's very important for us um, that didn't grow up with any of this stuff, first of all, not to feel like we have to bow in that way. It's not a requirement. <laughs> and then getting that sense that I remember when I first was exposed to it. Um, it was easy for me. I like bowing. <laughs> I just love putting my forehead on the on the earth. Um, and I would bow to the flowers on the altar, because that's like, that's had meaning for me as a as a child, and um, I could make that connection. So over time, my understanding of what I have been bowing to has changed, and hopefully, it keeps changing. There was some years that I really felt like every time I bow a lot, if you can imagine, (laughs) a lot of bowing. And uh, just that sense that I feel like I've bowed in every mental state possible, just (laughs) through every kind of calm, boredom, storm, just possible, and and just feeling that that quality of just um, being with things as they are that that peace, the contentment that comes through not taking it personally and understanding that it is... It's, when we accept things as they are, it doesn't mean that we're condoning it. It means that it's the truth of what is happening. It's the fact. And that these, these teachings... Particularly, upeka or equanimity bring up a lot for us because we often will feel like if I accept this, this means that we're saying that it's right. And that's not what it means. It means that it is happening. So, say we unconditionally accept something that really isn't acceptable, like people hungry on the planet. That is so unacceptable and yet it does happen and that's the, that's what's being said that it, it is happening and then how can we relate to that can we can we respond to that with care compassion equanimity rather than rage so these these are um, we'll touch into these again and again these aspects the, the deepest aspect of Anjali that I found once in a poly dictionary, the last definition was that the bowing was making a full offering of ourselves. It's like a, a whole offering of our body and mind. You know, it's, it's a very beautiful thing when you see that a bow is an offering or actually maybe we can start to grasp that our life is so precious. Human birth is considered so so rare and exceptional in this in this tradition that, that that there can be that way that our life is an offering, and how beautiful that is that when we start to see that that's a possibility, and it it's so easy as we all know to take take things that are so fundamental uh, for granted. So shelter, just shelter, just warmth, <laughs> just the heat that we have here, and the clothing, and the food, you know, just just that way in which um, we forget. So that sense of like, even the sense of our karma, the goodness of the karma that are the karma that we we just again we we so easily can slide into discontent mainly because we're just not remembering. It's it's that basic. Um, again, those two rare and ki- rare and precious kinds of human beings. You know the you know the beings that often touch us are often the most grateful. They're they're not taking things for granted. Hmm. For example, our breath happens, luckily, (laughs) fortunately. It's still happening for each one of us here. And if you've ever been... At someone's death, it's like so powerful. Those the last few minutes of someone's life, where you're just with their breath, and it it's so clear that at that moment when the breath stops, how how big a shift it is. So that that sense of um, making that connection with our breath. <laughs> As, as a force of its air element, and it's, it's like so fundamental to life. This is, this is part of what we do here. Our steps, our breath, The last of the four guardian meditations is reflecting on our death or our mortality, and it's considered a protection, a great protection, not taking life for granted and knowing it can happen anytime. So it's not meant to be a morose or morbid reflection, it's actually meant to give us, like, the the sense again of not taking life for granted and making good use of our time here like we would consider this being here at this retreat really good use of your time you know i saw a lot of um film clips live on television when i grew up with martin luther king but i really never ran into his transcripts and Um, down where Steve and Kate are staying, I found this book on the great sermons of Martin Luther King, Jr. So I just wanted to read this from that perspective um, of uh, the combination of death being a great um, protection, the reflection on it, uh, but also the way that he transformed that into gratitude. So he... He made this speech two months before he died, and it's, it's well known that there was almost like this premonition he was having. Um, he said, every now and again, I think about my own death, and I think about my own funeral. And I don't think of it in a morbid sense, But every once in a while I just ask myself, what is it that I would want said? And I leave the word to you this morning. So there's a bit more, I guess it's so cool. He said, if any of you are around when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. (laughs) And every now and and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That is not important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd just like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love someone. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the war question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. And I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to close those who were naked. I want you to say that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. And I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. humanity. And what I'm saying is that that comes out of great reverence for life and great gratitude for life, rare and precious. And there's such a different way that that can be expressed in the human world. There's such a range of of someone like Martin Luther King. And then there are beings that... We just don't see. Or, you know, they're they're just so, they are known as fully enlightened, but they're so quiet, we don't even get to see them. One day, uh, not last year, I didn't go to Burma this year, but the year before, um, when I was in Burma, the abbot of the monastery, Sayada Ulakana, was quite ill. But he was still teaching a lot, but he was ill. And he couldn't go up the steps anymore, so we used to come down to his um basically his, you know, bedroom place you could visit him for the Dhamma talks. And his teacher, one of his teachers, showed up in the middle of the Dhamma talk. There was no communication. He just somehow knew he was sick and came came to give him energy and it was so beautiful (laughs) because it was such a surprise and it was in the middle of the talk and it was the last, it was the last day, last Dhamma talk Um, and Sayeda Ulakana was just like a little boy like he he just looked like a little kid that had just been given the greatest gift in the world and you see him bow down to his teacher and make a special place for him it was really moving and this teacher is known as fully enlightened so you know that means really that sense that the buddha said when he became fully enlightened done is what had to be done you know when we get to say that (laughs) that is someday done is what had to be done it's so deep um So he just sat there, and if you didn't tune into his vibe, it was a real loss, (laughs) because the vibe was so peaceful um, and so quiet. And then the thing that was so funny is that that was when we had to break silence, and people had been quiet for a month and silence for a month, uh, and then they went up for tea, and it was just like so loud. For a month it's so silent and then you can hear people. And you know when you start you can't stop usually. It's so painful, you know. And it was like the sound from a distance was so painful. But it's a necessity, you know. And and then suddenly Saito got word to me that we were going to be allowed to go see this teacher for a little while. He's old too, but, you know, so I had to go up to the group and say, you know, <laughs> Time to be quiet but they just talked for 10 minutes you know and they were leaving the next day so it was pretty intense so they followed me up to this room um but had started talking again they couldn't t- they couldn't stop you know so we were in this very small room in a different area okay. like really small cramped in and people were just talking and talking and i had had to take care of something else so Finally, I, like was, I came in and I sat down, and I was like, kind of thinking that this teacher was just going to come. And then I realized, he's not going to come in here <laughs> like this. He was in there waiting. He had been there like it had been 15 minutes, and then I was like, oh, I just got it. And I said, okay, everybody. And, we, I just was shh, and everyone just was quiet. The second it got quiet, he walked in. You know, these guys aren't... They don't chat. (laughs) You know, it's really not what they do. (laughs) And it's like, we don't even realize what that could be like. But when you get in a silent retreat and you get a sense of like the power of not speaking and then imagining that the, none of the speech that's coming out is motivated by aversion or attachment or delusion. There's actually not that much to say. <laughs> it's- it is funny. Yeah, it's, it's either funny or cryable. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, there, it's like there's just, you know, there's a lot of quiet, a lot of consideration before our speech. And I remember at that point in time, when I go to Burma, I never feel like I bring enough for people. There's so little that people have. And I usually have a suitcase full of stuff. And I was horrified that I didn't have a gift for him. So that's that's what I remember, that I had run up to my um, kuti, way up these steps, while people were going in, and I looked around, and all I had was um, a bag of cough drops. So I felt so like it wasn't going to be enough, but I, it was all I had. So I went running up, brought it down, and I was sitting there feeling like, oh, this isn't enough that was just the whole thing i was this isn't enough and but i knew i had to offer something so i offered these cough drops and he gave either i don't know a very long talk about generosity and how important it is and particularly medicine and particularly medicine for monks and just like He just made me feel like I had given him the best thing you could possibly give. (laughs) Really, it was just, again, there's that sense of the beauty of tuning in and receiving. And receiving with such total elegance. It was really moving. And then my favorite part of what he talked about after that was, um, you know, we think of a Arahant, a fully enlightened being, as, you know, really evolved, right? I mean, it's amazing. And he started describing these realms of existence, and he started, like, sort of at the bottom where he was. So he started talking about... a. A mere mere ordinary arahant. (laughs) And then went from there, you know, to the more evolved arahants. And it was so great. I was sitting there like, hmm. (laughs) It's just that up-leveling, you know. It's an up-leveling. It's an up-leveling. And it gives you such a sense of um, elegance and beauty of what's possible. In those um, stories that are from the Haida-Gwaii tradition that I love so much, uh, they describe human beings in, the, in their mythology as ordinary surface birds. And I, I don't know if you ever look at the ducks on the ocean, you know, while you're here, but. When you look at... Just try it sometime. Just contemplate them for a while and think about that that's the description of human beings, you know. And it's, it's again, to think of ourselves that way, it can be more, more f- humorous and easier to understand why things are so messed up in a way in the world. It's like when you really realize... Ten days of sitting, when you realize, actually, honestly, how much we actually are motivated by greed, hatred, and delusion, and you look at the world, it's much more comprehensible. Yeah, It's not a surprise. And that can be very helpful, I think, just to, to, to see. How many arahants do you know? <laughs> how many have I met? I can count them on this hand. And all of them I have ever met have had like a 100% total transformative effect on me. When you listen to Martin Luther King and you hear it, it makes us tear up or be moved because yeah, it's like there's something so genuine there and so important for us. Because then it's like we sense that we're a part of that, we know we have that Possibility. So the deep quiet that I'm talking about in this particular being Sayadaw's teacher, it's it's not just that there's like the absence of talking; it's an absence of reactivity. You know, there there is just a deep. Quiet, but it's the quiet of that deep contentment with things just as they are. So, we can sometimes talk about the near enemy of equanimity, this unconditional peace or unconditional acceptance. So, we'll name these things like indifference indifference can look so much like equanimity. That's the meaning, remember, of the near enemy. The near enemy is the experience that seems so much like it, but isn't. So it's that masquerade, the experience masquerades, but you know because there's an absence of feeling connected. There's a feeling of being shut down rather than connected. And, And there's many aspects of this, like naivete, That's a great one, yeah? And sometimes naivete can feel so good. (laughs) Because we just... It's like kind of having your head in the sand, you know? We want... We want... We don't want people to be motivated by greed, hatred, and delusion. We don't want to know about it. And so we, we pretend that it's not operating. And it's a great protection... It's the best we can do often. So in that category is passivity or denial. And then, of course, the opposite of, of this equanimity is when there is pleasure or joy. It's holding on to it. The reaction is the holding on to it. When it starts to pass, that's, the, that's what we mean by reacting. And this is what the Buddha taught was suffering, and that when, there's, when the pain appears physical, mental, emotional it's that fear or the pushing it away, the irritation, annoyance, aversion, aggression, violence. you know it's like the, these two polarities of reacting. And one thing that's really important to remember is that equanimity, no matter, like anyone in this room, it's equally <laughs> rare for all of us, no matter what type we are. It's like, it, it's like if you saw an apple blossom in the orchard now, and that the time it takes for the apple to grow and ripen equanimity is like this you can rush some other spiritual qualities but you cannot rush equanimity except by coming into a longer retreat it's that coming into the longer retreat and going through the sleepiness (laughs) right the the then equanimity happens It's like when equanimity happens, it's like a kind of grace, and you really believe it should be impermanent and should be permanent. And then when we find out that equanimity is impermanent, oh, it's so bittersweet! So we go through the ups and downs every day, every day, every day. That is what incubates this equanimity which is being okay just with things as they are and not critical not taking them personally that that's how equanimity can happen because it'll feel like a kind of grace but it'll happen after you have really put in some time So fake equanimity which we're all brilliant at you know we could all just sit there with our Oscar actually you know <laughs> it's amazing how good we are at it and you know how it looks is often it's you can see it the clearest when you have had some equanimity and then you're sitting there and then there's some place in your body that has a lot of intense sensation, <laughs> pain, right? And it's come back. And we can, we'll can we sit there and go, what? I don't really care if it's come back. <laughs> That's the first sign. <laughs> or, you know, there's some loud noise or something, and we're like... Because it hasn't bothered us, right? It, it's, we've been fine with pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. We've been totally fine. And then something happens and we're not okay with it. But we pretend we're okay with it because we don't want to face the fact that it's gone. And it isn't ours. And it isn't personal. So that's, again, the beauty of the time and space, to start seeing ourselves. The the sweetest experience that can happen is equanimity. We want it so much, we know that's the mind of an arahant. We know that's the six-limbed equanimity. And (laughs) when it starts to go, it's like, it's usually what we yearn for the most once we've tasted it. And it's learning to let the wanting it back be okay. It's totally okay to want it back. In fact, of course, we want that back. Why wouldn't we want it back? But we can't control it. It'll come and go by itself. So noticing all those attempts to pretend we're okay when we're not—just t- it takes a lot of energy—and just being able to go, "Oh, it's the wanting." it to be okay place but it isn't you just learn to not take it personally and not react and accept that that it's changed that takes practice so this sometimes it's like when we get a glimpse of this we get a sense that the awareness when we talk about liberation Or freedom, the liberated mind, we get a sense that the awareness just is not imprisoned by the experience. So if there is some intense physical pain, it's there. The equanimity isn't getting rid of it, but there's just the awareness is not sucked in and it's not feeling like we have to get rid of it and it's mine. It's just okay, it's just sensations. It's just phenomena coming and going by itself. You know, and, and again, it's like, we can't make that happen. It's not a command. It's not like you can have this part of you that's a drill sergeant go going, let go! <laughs> you know, It's it's not like that. It's the understanding that allows that to be like that. And we can recover mindfulness at any moment and this is the, the very important the practice of it's like it sounds like i'm saying to be okay with not being okay but it it really is possible when the equanimity goes there is a way like say indifference happens say we the heart just starts to close and we feel disconnected it is possible in those moments to go oh Disconnection, feeling disconnected. Great. Let me see what this feels like. You see, we've recovered. And that that is possible at every moment. With concentration, there's always the fear of losing it. But with mindfulness, you can recover it at any moment. Any moment, there's that remembering that we can be with anything. And, and this takes time. It's like... Mindfulness, equanimity, you keep learning that the experience does not matter. Whatever we're experiencing isn't the point. The point is, how is the awareness relating to it? And, you know, we, we learn it, we forget. <laughs> we learn it, we forget. We learn it, we forget. <laughs> and that it's just that, just keep putting in your time. And it's just, it's so amazing When we can say, oh, great, indifference. And you you hear me exaggerate it, but it really has to sometimes be exaggerated. It really has to be, oh boy, I was really hoping that I could take a better look at indifference right now. Because it's usually not like that. We're usually, oh no, my heart's closing. And we take it so personally and we think something's wrong. There is nothing wrong with that experience. It's simply indifference. Of course it happens. And learning how to, to be okay with it, usually the attention needs to open up. And as Steve has been saying, there's different flavors to the Brahma Viharas. It's like compassion or is like a way that we can connect to the um, indifference, And then by caring about it a bit, maybe then more acceptance will come. Or maybe, you know, in that process, uh, some loving kindness will be helpful. It's not like they're that different, but they they are like having some um, orange sherbet rather than vanilla. They're just different, a little bit different skill. So the other day when I um, mentioned that my first retreat, I got a sense that about 99% of my experience wasn't acceptable to me. Um, That's really changed. It's It's not 100%. And I felt like one of the expressions that helped me understand how to make that shift was the expression, just enough. And the translation was from something that I read that the Japanese word for begging bowl is translated as just enough. Begging bowl, you know, again, meaning. So the monks and nuns in the Buddhist tradition, they don't go buy food. They have a begging bowl. (laughs) This is just to keep in mind what the Buddha encouraged. It's like they had a big, they have a begging bowl, and they only eat what someone puts in their bowl and not afternoon. And sometimes they get really good stuff, and sometimes they get not such good stuff, and depending on where you are and who you are, but it's like they don't get to say, "You know, I want almonds instead of peanuts." <laughs> You know, no, really, I I really mean it. It's like if you even took it as a metaphor, the begging bowl, the translation meaning just enough, that as lay people we can really learn from that, we can translate that into, Is was this day for you just enough? But it, that's usually much too large. It's like, was this breath that we just took just enough? Was this Dhamma talk just enough? Well, it's long. (laughs) There's probably parts of it that you can take as just enough. And this doesn't mean that we have to feel guilty and shame whenever we're wanting more. What we do is we recover the mindfulness and we feel like it's not enough and we shift into letting ourselves want more. That's the gift of mindfulness. then the wanting more, in that case, is just enough. In fact, any experience is more than enough for us to really try to be with, right? If you try to be with a whole breath from the beginning and middle and end, you'll find that it's (laughs) a lot to pay attention to. And if you try to pay attention to the sound of a bird just for a little while, Very easy to go off. But it's just enough if we make the connection and stay with it. It's the same for being with anger. Or being with shame. Or being with joy. It's like when that awareness can just totally accept that that is what's happening. No past. No future. You know, not trying to conjure up something that we would like better, but just that, I can guarantee you it's always just enough. And it's when we fall prey to our preferences, it's like when we believe that the preference is so, so clearly more important than the truth. (laughs) And you could call that being a fool (laughs) we get fooled we get fooled by the object of the wanting and everyone in here can just just totally testify (laughs) to how much we do it we get fooled by the object of the aversion we get caught in the whole play of something happening out there and it's so hard to pull it back into into here The Buddha called that the suffering that ends suffering. That willingness to, to really feel indifference and to really feel wanting more and to really feel not wanting something. You know, that, that ability to not project it, not drown in it, but just to let it come and go by itself and then liberation is coming when you can do that, not have to act on it. Um, there was a experience I had once um, picking Steve up at the airport in Honolulu that helped me really see what it's like to see a preference <laughs> very clearly and know I wasn't going to get it. Uh, it was it was so powerful. Uh, he was supposed to come in from somewhere probably at like 6 at night, and the plane was delayed, and I think it came in at like 2 or 3 in the morning. Uh, so I, I knew it was going to be late, but I didn't anticipate this amazing fl- flash flood <laughs> that happened as I was driving to the airport. And then not only was there a flash flood, but... Um, as I was going up the highway, there was this neon flashing sign that, you know, I didn't know, that, like, rerouted traffic through a place in Hawaii that uh, Honolulu, I didn't know, it rerouted it through this part of town that was not lit up and dark. And So, to make a long story short, I love describing this because it was so interesting. So I'm going down the highway, flash flood, I see this sign that says, you can't go up the ramp. To the airport, airport, and I was like, "That doesn't mean me." <laughs> right? You know, I, I do that really. It's, I'm so good at it. It's like, you know, because there were a couple times it came up before you actually couldn't do it, right? <laughs> and they had it gated, you couldn't. But I just Don't like. You have a tape on Michael, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So, yeah, you finally you finally have to come to grips with reality. So I kept I kept thinking they surely don't mean me I'm going to get to go up the thing, but it you know, finally I get to the exit and I can't take it. It's like, oh. So then I go up and you take the next exit and it's really raining just like big puddles and I get to a stop sign, I take a left. No signs, of course, what to do. Or, and um I almost <clears throat> almost tried to call somebody, <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> uh, and I'm going down this hill. I've never been in, like I've never driven in this bad a flash flood. And I'm coming down a hill, um, and I see a big intersection ahead, and uh, I go to step in the brakes, and I, what do they call it, hydroplaning? Mm-hmm. And I just, like, I've driven in snow. I know how to steer into the skid and all that, and it was just like, There was no control. Like, it was like just amazing. And I really saw that I had a preference. (laughs) It was so clear. You know, it's like I had a preference for this not to be happening. I had a preference for no cars to go through the intersection, right? It was all just like so slow and so clear. And I knew I couldn't act on it. And it was so liberating. There was such a feeling of, like, having to surrender so clearly. And it was, like, not, you know, it was not a pleasant... (laughs) That the experience of, like, anticipation of what could happen was not pleasant. But the actual, like, surrender was very peaceful. Really, like, this deep contentment, like, okay, what can you do, right? Right? But that's how it is most of the time for us. In actual fact, life is moving that fast, and we actually don't have that much control. We, have, we can see that we'll have preferences, and we can act on them, but we don't have that much control about the result of our action, really. And it was, you know, it's like I went swirling through this thing. You know, I, it's amazing. I mean, phew, it was so lucky that I was okay. I kind of bumped into this curb and sign. and um, But for hours, that sense of like how clear the difference is between a preference and acting on it and, and surrendering to, we don't have that much control. We actually don't. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I have a um, neighbor I've rented in this neighborhood before, so um, when I've been there, I travel a lot. But he's quite old, and he's a trumpet player. And recently I read in some magazine that he's quite a famous trumpet player. I didn't know it. But every morning he plays the scales, but not at the same time. So it can be 7 o'clock, it could be eight o'clock it could be nine o'clock but it's hauntingly beautiful i mean it's hard to believe that scales could be so beautiful and when you're on retreat i know you get kind of you can hear anything and it's pretty exciting yeah (laughs) (laughs) but really it's so beautiful and uh as he's gotten older he rests about five or ten minutes between when he goes really high like before he would just keep going up and up and up and up and up and it's it's it's, it's beautiful um, and it always reminds me how important practice is he's great he's very well known and every day he's like 90 something he still does his scales and beautifully not casually very very dedicated Um, really beautiful. And this particular day that I noticed that he's starting to rest before he tries to hit the real high notes, there was another neighbor trying to start their lawnmower. And you know the, um, the, the rope ones that you have to pull, not the... Sit down, ones with the key, and he was just pulling and pulling and pulling, and I was thinking, oh yeah, that's how meta practice is sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's just like you just feel like you're just don't <laughs> And here they were, both together, just like this 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 man who just does his scales and the, the lawnmower that. You just pull and crank and crank until it gets going, and it's so much, the practice. And it's okay. It's like, it's okay. It's, it's like making that full full anjali to that, that this is how the human world is. That, yeah, we, we don't give out T-shirts at the end of the retreat that says, I don't have to do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> <haven't done> <laughs> <laughs> it might sell well. <laughs> but it's like that's why it's called practice. You know, and it's it's deep. It's deep in us to wanna get the degree or go for postgraduate work but and then feel like we don't do it anymore. And the things in life that we really start to see if we really love the truth, if we love it and then we'll we'll keep at it because it's the truth. So I'd like to end with another Emily Carr from the Book of Small again. There was much to see as we went up the river, and we went slowly, because there were so many things to get over and under. Sometimes there were little rims of muddy beach, pocked with the dent of deer hooves. Except for the stream, the place was very quiet. It was like the stillness of a bird held in the hand with just its heart throbbing. It was like the stillness of a bird held in the hand with just its heart throbbing. Gratitude, just enough, and deep contentment. It's like the, it's worth all, it's worth all the ups and downs to come to that kind of quiet and peace. Let's sit for a minute. May we keep facing the suffering that ends suffering until done is what had to be done.